1: Welcome back to Hang Time Podcast. Seku Smith in Atlanta, John Schumann in New Jersey, my main man. The 2018-19 season is upon us. It's right here. We can see training camp in the distance for all these teams around the league. So we're cranking up a little bit here with division previews. We've already done the Pacific Division. This is our second preview, the Atlantic Division. Shoe, this is close to home for you, I know, obviously. You know, you being located up there in the tri-state area and having access to several of the teams in this division, you know, in close proximity to you. Boston is most people's pick for the cream of the crop in the Eastern Conference. I'm gonna start with Boston and ask you is that the team that you look at and say they make all the sense in the world with Kyrie Irving Gordon Hayward coming back to what we saw from them last year in the Eastern Conference Finals team that they should be there in in that seat at the top of the east
0: absolutely yeah. um I think they have everything basically I mean they had the number one defense in the league last year and they have on offense Kyrie Irving Jalen Brown Jason Tatum Gordon Hayward Al Horford, And then even like a, you know, spark plug off the bench like a Terry Rozier. So I think they have the ability to be the best team in the East for sure. And also maybe the biggest threat to the Golden State Warriors in the postseason, just because their ability to match up and play different ways and play small with Horford at center, uh, who's a mobile guy on both ends of the floor and, and a fulcrum on both ends of the floor, but also... Play big and and have a guy like Aaron Baines who can absorb some of the hits against a guy like Joel Embiid in the in the Eastern Conference playoffs. So there's not much to dislike about Boston and not much to worry about about mm. Boston if you're just throwing health out of the equation. Yeah. So I, I'm excited for this. I mean, this could be this team could be really good. The the Celtics are the only team that has seen a winning percentage increase in each of the last four seasons. So in the only Fred team Stevens, in the entire league. In, only team in the league. In Brad oh. Stevens' first year, 2013-14, they won 25. Then they went to 40, 48, 53, and 55 last season. And they can make it five in a row for sure. Yeah. Um, I see them as a 60-win team and the best team in the east unless unless uh you know one of these other two teams that we're going to talk about in this division takes a big step forward
1: right let me ask you one question and and I like you said we don't have many about the Celtics they obviously are are stacked is it bigger deal for them having a healthy Kyrie and Gordon Haywood or the fact that LeBron James is no longer standing (laughs) at the no I'm serious at the end of the tunnel in the eastern conference with the Cleveland Cavaliers
0: I think it's more about them than LeBron not being there. I really right. do. I think if LeBron stayed in Cleveland this summer, mm-hmm. I would still pick the Celtics to be the to win the East. Okay, that's exactly. I, I mean, right. they they had Game Seven on their home floor. Yeah, and if they don't shoot seven for thirty nine from three point range, then they are the first Eastern Conference team to knock LeBron out of the playoffs right. uh, since two thousand nine. So, okay, honestly, I thought they should have won last year. Yeah, they should have beat him last year, and for sure, I would have thought they would beat him. I would favor them this year with those two guys healthy and with Brown and Tatum being one season better, you know.
1: Most people are looking at at that division and at the Eastern Conference in total and saying Boston won in a lot you know, most people saying Philly too. But I'm going to switch gears. Is it me or are we overlooking the Toronto Raptors? Even with the tumultuous summer they had trading away DeMar DeRozan for Kawhi Leonard and firing the coach of the year in Dwayne Casey and replacing him with Nick Nurse, I still feel like we're overlooking the Raptors and the fact that they could very well be that team that's right there behind the Celtics in the division and in the East.
0: I mean, I'm with you. I mean, I think I wrote down, you know, best case scenario, they're the best team in the East. And Kawhi Leonard is an MVP candidate. Hmm. You know, I think, heck, they were a top five team on both ends of the floor. The only top five team on both ends of the floor last season. So why can't they be that this season with Kawhi Leonard and Danny Green in place of DeMar DeRozan, you know, and with guys like uh, OG Ananobi and Pascal Siakam just getting better, you know, like, I mean, those guys are really good. I mean, this was the best team in the East last season, right? They were there. Yeah. They just had a meltdown of epic (laughs) proportions um, in the conference semifinals. And, I still don't know how to explain it. I really don't. Um, They were the better team in that series going into that series, and they should have won that series if they played to their ability, but they didn't. For me, I think it's about Ananobi and Siakam, I think specifically Siakam and then also Serge Ibaka. I right. think he, he took a step backward in the playoffs last year. He almost became unplayable in the playoffs last year yeah. in that series. I think he played like 12 minutes in one game and like 18 or 19 minutes in another game in that series. If Siakam and Ibaka give them to, can play center and be effective small ball centers, this team could be really terrific defensively especially um, just with all their athleticism on the wing and playing small and versatile. You know, Ibaka is only 29, like 28 years old. He's turning 29 uh, early in the season, I think. So, or I'm actually next week, I believe he's turning 29. Mm-hmm. So, like, he should be able to be floor spacing, shot blocking five guy that every team would love to have. I just don't, you know, I think it's just a matter of recovering from, from whatever happened last season. And so, he hasn't played yeah, in case that case space. In yeah, I yeah, thought I he's mean,
1: drifted away from that the last few years for some reason.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think that the maybe the athleticism has taken a step backward, and that that's obviously tough. But maybe Siakam can step into that role. I mean, he's obviously got to shoot better. You know, he was an awful shooter this past season. But like I said, they have the potential to be. The best team in the East. The potential is there if Kawhi Leonard is healthy and engaged and back playing like he was a couple of years ago. It's absolutely there. But you know, there's also a worst case scenario where that's not the truth, and neither of those, uh, the Siakam or Baca, you know, has a better season than they did last year, and their chemistry issues, and they take a step backward on both ends of the floor, and and you know, then they're the third or fourth best team in the East. Right.
1: I got one question for you about the Raptors, and this involves Kawhi Leonard. Is it more important? that Nick Nurse craft an offensive system around him or that they fit him into one? The reason I ask that is we've only ever seen Kawhi in a Spurs uniform. We've only ever seen him in the system that was already in place when he got to San Antonio. So as great a player as he is, do we know if his game fits anywhere? Can you take him from one, you know, side of the the league to the other and have him be the same effective player, regardless of the pieces around him.
0: I don't think you design an offense around him. Mm-hmm. And I say that because I don't think he's, it is great at making plays for others. Mm-hmm. You know, he got, he's gotten so much better at shooting and scoring on his own one-on-one or just in pick and roll, but he doesn't have the vision and, you know, the ability to, to sort of make plays for others. I mean, I think you know, we saw DeRozan take a big step forward in that last year, and I think his last year, DeRozan was better at sort of making plays for other guys than Kawhi Leonard was. And, and I'm just talking about that specific skill. Sure. Than Kawhi Leonard was uh, two seasons ago when he was, I guess, third in MVP voting or second or third in MVP voting. Right. I think it's more about building a system where where he fits in, and he's a big part of it. And obviously, when he's on the floor, he's a big part of it. But where You know, you're not depending on him. You don't want to get – you want the ball to move like it started to do last season and, you know, where the ball just finds the open guy and it's not about one guy creating for for others.
1: Not trying to cater. Yeah, I mean, I I thought they got themselves in trouble trying to cater, you know, to certain guys, and when it turns out they were a better team when, like you said, they involved all those different guys.
0: I mean, they have a lot of guys that can make plays. Lowry, yeah. uh, Leonard, Van Vliet, uh, Van Vliet yeah. even uh, Wright to an extent. Right, uh, Delon Wright. Sure, and I think even Ananobi in summer league they start they put the ball in his hands a lot to help try to get him to develop you know the on the ball skills. Yeah. So I, I think there's plenty of playmaking to go around for you to try. You know, so you don't have to build a system that's dependent on one guy to carry the load.
1: Right. From the Raptors to what is undoubtedly my favorite player and favorite team to keep an eye on in this division, and perhaps in the entire league? Look, I'm be honest. I love Joel Embiid. I love any dude who can have as much fun on his job and be as good at it as Embiid was last season, you know, who takes this thing for what it is. You know, he's not treating basketball like it's, you know, life and death, but he's certainly out there going at it and enjoying it and poking to bear every chance he gets you know whether it's other players or other teams are we down a little bit on them because of what they didn't do in the offseason in terms of they didn't attract that everybody's talking like they're gonna get their hands on a big name free agent the only other meeting that LeBron James and his camp took in free agency other than the Lakers was with Philadelphia so I guess they were in at least in the running but draft picks in Wilson Chandler and Mike Muscala, does not signal this huge offseason influx that's going to change the fortunes for this team.
0: No, but I think if a star becomes available on the trade market at any time between now and February, Philadelphia is going to be on the phone quickly and we'll have the assets. If you look at between Wilson Chandler and Jared Bayless, that's more than $20 million in expiring contracts. And then they have a guy like Zaire Smith that perhaps they could throw into a trade. They have the Miami pick, unprotected Miami pick that they picked up in the, the draft day trade that sent Bridges to Phoenix, Phoenix yeah. and and and, and Zaire Smith to Philly. So I think they have the ability to still be shopping for stars and they still preserve some cap space for next summer. So right. I think they are still in the market for a third guy to add to the you know the Embiid and Simmons core. This team could be, you know, this is a third team. I think that could be the best team in the Eastern Conference. Another guy, Embiid, that could be an MVP candidate. They have the X factor of all X factors. I think. in, in, in <laughs> Markel Fultz, Fultz, yeah. You know, I think it. What is he? What, what is he? Is he over whatever was bothering him last year? Is he? Can he play with Ben Simmons? To can they play together? Can he be a guy that just eats up second unit defenses and? For me, I, I worry about the offensive end of the floor. I think they're going to be fine defensively, just because they're so big. Right. You know, they have when they have a you know a lineup that includes Simmons, Covington, Sarich, and Embiid. I mean, those guys, are, it's just huge, and they're yeah. gonna that's going to be a good defensive lineup, no matter what. I think it's a matter of recreating the offensive success that they had in the second half of the season, sort of through the first round of the playoffs last year, with the departures of Bellinelli and Eliasova. Those are two keys to that, and so. It's about recreating the the sort of the player movement that they had with Bill and Bellinelli, the the spacing that they had with Ilyasova. Sure. Faults is a is a totally different element. But then I also worry about a little bit about them getting caught between styles and sort of the the pace of Ben Simmons and then the sort of the slow deliberate post play of Embiid. Like right. they have to be able to put those together in in the, in, in a
1: cohesive way. Could Simmons have done enough? Work on his shot in the offseason to change the dynamic for them, for I don't himself, know. and like, for them I, I'm, as a team. I'm
0: curious. Yeah, I mean, they, they need both of those guys to be able, both Simmons and Fultz, to right. be able to make a shot outside of 15 feet. You right. know, they can't. I think it's not just about Fultz being able to shoot. Simmons has got to be able to do it too. You know, Boston took advantage of his in, uh, inability to shoot. Like, yeah. they played him. Um, Perfectly played thought, off yeah. of him. Yeah, stayed in front of him, and if you stay in front of him, he's got you know he, he's it can be a struggle. So he's yeah he's got to develop that shot as well. And uh, so I'm curious to see both of those guys in the preseason. Heck, you know I don't even need to wait till um, <laughs> October. You just look at their shots and how comfortable they are and how confident they are. And look at the form. One of those first couple preseason games, and you'll you know you might have a much better idea of how good the Sixers are going to be than you know we know right now.
1: Right, I'm going to have a lot of eyeballs obviously on on the Sixers this year. Um, but the one question about them, just as a organization, I'm I'm wondering about: Are they going to hire a GM? Like, is it going to happen? Do they not need one? That's um, a great question. Is Sam Hickey still available? Uh... <laughs> you know
0: what? I'm curious to see what happens. I don't want Brett Brown to have to deal with that. You know, yeah. I think I think we've learned, you know, Thibodeau is still trying to do the dual role. Hey, thing good, idea yeah, It hadn't worked yeah, out well for a lot of guys. I think we've learned that it's best for coaches to coach and GMs to do their thing. Right. Um it is curious that now it's been uh, more than three months since Colangelo resigned. And hasn't and like, there hasn't even been like
1: there hasn't even been like rumblings about them being pressed about doing something like that. You know, about True. figuring True. out any successors.
0: Yeah, yeah. There's been sort of rumblings that they're gonna keep waiting. You know? Yeah. But like I said, I mean, they have tools to make impact trades right now. Right. And you never know when somebody's gonna come on the market. You know, uh, a Kemba Walker could go to the Hornets tomorrow and say, "Hey, I want out of here." Right. You know, or something. You don't know, don't go start the rumors. Ron.
1: Don't don't go yeah, start any Yeah, No, no. Fires <laughs> and
0: I mean, I don't want to say. You know, I'm, I'm <laughs> not. And don't run with that. But they. they But there are other players that are on, say, expiring deals or that may say, hey, you know what? I'm probably not going to stay half beyond this year. Uh, You know, look at Minnesota. There's a particular two-way star that that could say that. Sure. And, you know, the Sixers got to be ready to pounce if that happens.
1: True. Um... One place where they don't have to worry about dynamic between the front office and their coaching staff is New York. The Knicks for the first time in a while, shoe, seem like they have some synergy between new head coach David Fisdale, Scott Perry, and Steve Mills in the front office. What they don't have is their anchor player. We don't know how long it's going to take Chris Dabbs, Porzingis to come back and recover fully from his knee injury that uh, cut short his 2017-18 season. What are you hanging your hat on if you're the if you're a Knicks fan and trying to feel hopeful about not just this season, but the future, do you have to see Kevin Knox, you know, become a rookie of the year candidate? Do you have to see, you know, one of the holdover players, Frank Delaquina? do you have to see him become something much more special than maybe what he showed as a rookie? Where can you find the silver lining? If you're a Knicks fan,
0: I actually wrote down best case scenario for the Knicks. And number one is no setbacks for KP, like no, you know, a smooth sailing as far as his rehab and recovery, and that he's a hundred percent by next October. Okay. You know, like forget this season. Like, yeah, maybe if he can play, okay, he can play. But, but no rush, yeah. And any part of this season, I mean, I, I don't see any scenario where this team put makes the playoffs in the East, in, in, as bad as the Eastern Conference might be. in right. You know, in the six, seven, eight range, I don't see any scenario where that happens. There's just not enough talent yeah. on this team around. There's not much. So number one is. No setbacks for him, and he's ready to go by next season. And after that, I think it's Nilakina's development offensively off the dribble. I think he's like an impact player already defensively, but offensively, he's got a long way to go. Yeah. So you want to see a step forward in that way. You want to see, you know, David Fisdale come in and like we talked about with a couple of the Pacific division teams last week, you know, set a foundation both offensively and defensively and culture wise and, you know, set something up for the next few years where they can build off of, even if, even if this is a, you know, a 15 to twenty win season or whatever it is, as bad as it might be. And then, yeah, for Knox to translate some of the, his summer league success to, to regular season, you know, and I don't think there's much pressure on him to do that. You know, it's about getting his feet wet and, and learning the NBA And then uh, otherwise, I think it it could be about, you know, unloading a Courtney Lee or or I don't know, figuring out what's going to happen with Joe Kim Noah, because, you know, we know they have dreams of making a splash in free agency next year. But both of those guys have contracts that go beyond this summer. So that's, you know, Courtney Lee has like 13 million in 1920, and Noah has 19 million, is getting is owed 19 million in 2019 20. So they they can unload some of that or, or come up with a buyout agreement with Noah to increase their cap space for next summer. I think that's obviously important to them. So, uh, what you're that, telling me is yeah, yeah. if I'm a
1: Knicks yeah. fan, I just need to.
0: Don't worry about the wins and losses, please. <laughs> don't even think about the wins and losses. Right. And I, I mean, I hate to tell a team, you know, I hate when, when fans like root for their team to lose. That's the one thing. Like Players go out there to win, yeah. and coaches are trying to win. So I don't like that aspect of you know NBA basketball when fans are rooting for their team to lose. But I'll just say don't worry about the wins and losses with this team. It's right. about Milikinas so. t- taking a step forward, Porzingis getting healthy, Knox getting his feet wet, And maybe if you can set yourself up better for 2019 than you
1: already are. Right. I do feel like there's a reason to be hopeful if you're Knicks fans because you do have some, finally, it looks like you have some stability and structure in place in terms of the framework provided by your front office and the coaching staff. So hopefully they get a chance to build a solid foundation, even if, you know, like you said, though, not be concerning yourselves with wins and losses. The last team in... The Atlantic division that we're going to focus on is one that I think, Shu, personally, this is my pick to be the surprise team in the division and maybe in the East in terms of what the expectations are externally and what they might be capable of if they take that next step. And that's the Brooklyn Nets. And I love Kenny Atkinson's approach when he got there. He understood about developing young players and developing a system yeah, I think he learned well, you know, from his time specifically with Mike Budenholzer in Atlanta and how to kind of set the dial, you know, for a young developing team and how you bring guys along. And if you look at some of their young guys, just the strides they made since he's been there has been really nice. You know, he and Sean Marks had history together. So clearly they got in there and, and worked in tandem in terms of figuring it out. But Do they have maybe sneaky playoff potential in the East if if things fall right for them?
0: I was looking at that. I wrote, you know, best case, I wrote eight seed question mark. And I think they're better than Atlanta, Chicago, Orlando, uh, New York this season for Mm -hmm. sure. And maybe Cleveland, right? right? So, like, that would put them 10th in
1: the East. Okay.
0: And then it's a question, can they leapfrog Charlotte, Detroit,
1: or Miami, right. like,
0: and get into that
1: mix. They'd have to have best case scenario, like things would have to break yeah, for them. And yeah,
0: and for me, it's like, yeah, it's, they've done a good job developing guys, and guys have gotten better. Right. But my question is, how much better can some of these guys get than they already are? So I put worst case scenario is that the young guys are who they are, mm. right? And that there's no real top 50 player on the roster. Right. You know that D'Angelo Russell just is who he is. You know he's not. You think and, that, and, yeah? You don't think there's yeah, a chance for him he, to? Well, um, that's the worst case scenario. That okay. he is who he is. That he has issues with consistency. He has issues with decision making. He has major issues with defense. Right. That Spencer Dinwiddie sort of is who he is. Like man, he he was. Uh, I like him, a yeah. Surprise last year and a good player, but that he's not nothing like a transcendent talent. I think the right. one to watch, uh, guy to watch is Jared Allen, you know, the center. Mm-hmm. If he gets sort of more comfortable playing NBA defense and he can become more active, I think he can be an impact defender. Right. And and Russell is obviously a, an X factor. I mean, he ha- he has talent. The one thing, I think the one issue with him is sort of like burst. Like he's a he's more of an east-west guard yeah. than a north-south guard. He doesn't exactly he can't exactly. All right. He gets switched on to a power forward or a center like he doesn't necessarily have the acceleration to get by that guy and get to the basket very easily. I don't know. I think in this NBA, you need guards that have burst or acceleration yeah. and can blow by guys. And I don't know if he's that. And so the question is, can he be a successful guard as more of a, an East-West guy, like I said, and, and having more of a, a feel? He has vision. I think he has good vision. I think he sees the floor pretty well. Um, it's just about making the right decisions and stuff. Like, he's, he's talent. I mean, he's number two pick three years ago, but this is the last year on his rookie deal. It's a huge season for
1: him, and, yeah. and I'm fascinated to see if he takes a step forward. He's got such crazy confidence, too. And I think that's always kind of been yeah. his X factor, but it, it runs out after a while, like where you have to have. And
0: it can be a bad thing. Like, I yeah. mean, if, you know, if he's, you know, there are times when he's feeling himself too much, you know, and that can be a detriment at times. He's got to be, you know, he's he's always got to know where his guys are on the floor and he can he can make some brilliant passes. He's just not always in that mode you know what I mean like it's interesting to watch him play I think for the most part last year they were better with him off the floor than they were with him on the floor they're better with Dinwiddie running it running the offense than with Russell but then when Russell came back from his injury Dinwiddie he took a step backward and so I think both of those guys both in their last year of the contract you know I don't know if either one is the point guard of the future for the Nets and I think that's a big question
1: for them I think there's another thing about the Nets that has been kind of admirable. You see a lot of franchises, shoot when they know they're not going to be very good, they kind of try and sell you this notion that, Hey, we're building for the future. We're building, you know, uh, a foundation for our team and we're doing it, you know, we're trying to change the culture, blah, blah. They're one of the teams that's actually said that and done it. Like you can see it. It's a tangible, thing watching the difference in how they played the past couple seasons as opposed to when they were spinning their wheels before that. I like that they've been as straightforward about it as they have. And then you see some proof of it in how they perform. Do you think that's as about a guy like Kenny Atkinson coming in and just having that immediate impact on how they operate? Or is that something organizationally that you think is even bigger? Maybe it's the thing that Sean Marks brings that in when he comes over and starts instituting certain things for those younger players,
0: I think it's both. I mm-hmm. mean, I think Sean Marks is doing a good job as far as establishing establishing a culture from his spot, and then Kenny Atkinson's doing a great job of doing the same from his position. And then I think they work together really well. I think yeah. you know, I think it's a pretty collaborative effort there. And so, but like I said, I mean, what they've established is is similar to Philadelphia in the first couple of years of Brett Brown, right? Yeah. The problem is they don't have the they haven't had the draft picks that the Sixers did and so they don't have the clear talent that's going to develop into a top 10 top 15 player like like I said I don't know if they have a top 50 player on their roster yeah really like and and I'm talking about just top 50 player right now I'm talking about like a a guy who will potentially be a top 50 player or a top 30 player or something that's the issue is like they're establishing that but they they haven't you reap the rewards of being the, yeah. taking the step backwards because of that Boston trade of 2013. And now this is the first year where they'll have their own draft pick, but they might be decent. You know, they yeah. added some veterans to the bench that will probably win them a few more games. You know, right. they upgraded their bench
1: uh, quite Ed a Davis, bit. Davis, Jared Dudley, Kenneth Fareed, Shabazz, yeah, you're right. And final thought on the Nets: So could they be major players in free agency? Could they maybe be the team? Yeah, definitely. They, they, yeah. I think so.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, it's a map Yeah, it's they have the potential. They have a ton of cap space yeah. this year. I mean, uh, Damari Carroll for Reed, Jared Dudley. Those are three big contracts coming off the books. I have them as having like fifty million or even more, possibly in right. cap space, depending on you know their options and qualifying offers and all that stuff. Right. For next summer, it's just a matter of. Is one guy going to take the leap? Is there two guys that that want to go together and, and love the culture and go to that practice facility or blown away by the practice facility and want to live in New York? I mean, who knows? I, I don't know, you know, what the the attraction I, I mean, I know what the attractions could be, but I don't know yeah. if there are players that are uh, attracted enough to that one city. Two facilities, beautiful, great arena, great practice facility, and then three, the culture that they've established. I mean, right. I think they, they're doing things the right way. It's just a matter of snagging that free agent or two.
1: Interesting. The Atlantic Division, to me, is going to be a bit more intriguing than people realize. You, I think it's going to be the most top-heavy division in the East. When you think about it, those three teams, oh, yeah, you know, Boston, three Philly, teams and the Toronto, those are three, yeah. they could be the three best teams in the Eastern Conference, easily.
0: And we, I think we, we said it before when we were going over power ranks. They could be the second, third, and fourth best teams in the NBA.
1: That's crazy. To go from where they were a few years ago to where they are now is pretty remarkable. Um, do you have a, a Schumann stat for the Atlantic Division? Let me see if – let me wash right. off my, this, this... my skills here. All
0: right. In the regular season last year, the Rockets – led for 66% of their minutes. I mean, mm-hmm. they, they were they were ahead for 66% of their total minutes in the regular season. Okay. So the question is, what team ranks second by holding a lead for 63% of their
1: minutes last season? So this team, yeah. I'm sure people would assume it's Boston because of the, how good they were and they got to the conference finals, but I'm going to say it's Toronto.
0: No. Ah. Incorrect. <laughs> Not Toronto. Toronto was third at 61%. Oh, man.
1: Boston was seventh
0: at 55%. So it's got to be Philly. Philly. Yeah. 63%. So they huh. they were the best team in the first six minutes of the first quarter. Mm-hmm. And that they were plus 21 points per 100 possessions in the first six minutes of the first six quarter. That was the best mark for any team in either the first six minutes or the last six minutes of any quarter. So the Sixers in the first six minutes of the first quarter is basically as good as it gets. For any sort of half of a quarter. But then they had the biggest drop off in how good they were <laughs> from the first half of games to the second half of games. Right. They were tied for the league lead in losses with seven losses after leading by 15 or more. They were tied for the league lead with four losses after leading by 20 or more. Wow. So, you know, they were, a, they would get off to great starts in the regular season and then, you know, fourth Struggled quarters were an issue. Yeah. It's kind oh, of playoffs, the story of this season. Yeah, playoffs though. Remember, they they had some big fourth quarters yeah. against Miami in the playoffs. So yeah. they sort of solved that issue in, in the playoffs. But it was an interesting. They were an interesting team where they, like I said, they held the lead for sixty three percent of their minutes. That just didn't translate into wins and losses as much as it should have.
1: Showcase division this year, I think, in the NBA potentially. The you know, as much as we talk about the Western Conference teams that are powerhouses, the Atlantic Division you know race could be the best in the league this year. We'll be back. On Thursday, with another division preview for the 2018-19 NBA season, Southwest Division is the one we're going to tackle on the next episode of the Hangtime Podcast. In the meantime, be sure, check out Sean Powell's 30 teams in 30 Days series on NBA.com. Great stuff. It's running all month, all September, on NBA.com. And if you haven't already, subscribe to Hangtime on Apple Podcasts and Spotify for episodes all season long. John Schumann, appreciate you as always, brother. Talk to you soon, and we'll see you right here. Next time on the Hangtime Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Hangtime Podcast. And be
0: sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts for a new episode every
1: Thursday this season. And as always, say Kuna Matata.